This morning, we're going to be starting with a subject that I just want to acknowledge up front that I know it can be difficult for a number of those around us. And so if, you know, as I'm sharing some of uh, this kind of opening theme, if you kind of are like, man, this is a little heavy for, for me, I need to get some space, feel free to step outside. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, do what you need to do to, to kind of care for yourself in there. Because um, over the past two weeks, we've been, we've been looking at God's promises to Abram. Later becomes Abraham, but he's still Abram in the text. And, and he's continued to reinforce those promises. And the three promises that, that God had promised to Abram in Genesis 12 was land, was people, and was blessing. Now, the tension that has existed in the text until this point is that God promised people, he promised descendants, offspring to Abram, but the text in, in, in just the chapter before notes that Sarai, his wife, has been barren. Genesis 11.30 is where it says that. And so before we get to the next portion of this narrative of Scripture, I want to take a step back and address some of the theological roots dealing with some of the difficult issues surrounding motherhood. Now last week we saw that Abram was, he struck out with God when he paraded Eleazar, a servant of his household before him, saying like, I guess this is my heir that we're going to hand everything down through. And God said, nope, like this isn't it. Keep waiting. It's, it's still coming. And so this morning we're going to see another strikeout where Sarai in her grief attempts to force God's plan into action. And it, it wasn't intentional, it just kind of happened this way that this discussion uh, surrounds the time when we honor Mother's Day. As I said at the beginning, this is a time of celebration for many, but also a time of difficulty for others. And so in this morning, as we see in the text a tangled up web of emotions, I hope we can see a God who both hears us and sees us in our moments of anguish. And so before we get to the text at hand, if I could invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 3 three chapters into the Bible. And Genesis chapter 3 is the narrative that describes the events of the fall, the time when sin entered the world. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good authority. They chose disobedience, decided to go their own way. And I want to focus on two verses which describe some of the consequences of the fall, the curses. So follow along as I read. This is Genesis 3, 16 and 17. So God speaking first to Eve and then Adam. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. I'm reading from the ESV. I know a lot of translations say different things here. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, in particular, I want to focus on that first line of the passage. You know, the standard translations, almost all of them, say that God will multiply pain in childbearing. That seems like a pretty self-explanatory reading. Now, anyone who has been through childbirth knows that it is incredibly painful. I've watched Sarah give birth to all three of our children naturally to this day, and I'm flabbergasted with how she could manage the pain. I mean, have you guys seen those videos where, you know, they, they, they take a, a man and they put some electrodes on his stomach to say, to try to simulate what contractions would feel like, and, you know, they usually get to like a two or a three on the scale of ten before they're like calling it quits. 
We look at Genesis 3.16 and we lament that, you know, childbirth is so painful. Except I don't think that's an accurate reflection of what is going on here. I don't think that's a reflection of the consequences of sin. If because of Adam and Eve's sin, God decides, you know, like, let's turn up the juice, turn it up to 11, on on the pain of childbirth, it seems a bit punitive to me. Almost like increasing a degree of torture, like I, I, I want to cause you more pain. And that never sat well with me. But if we look at these two verses in conjunction together, verses 16 and 17, I think there's some parallelism in this passage that we often miss. And I think it causes us to interpret it incorrectly. Now, just to a side note, I think, I mean, this kind of blew my mind. And so if it does for yours as well, don't be like, man, Pastor Chris is so smart. I didn't come across up with this, right? Like, totally, I got, I stole this from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. All right. So, we read the English word pain here in verse 16, and we assume it's talking about physical pain, right? Like, I pinched my arm, like, ow, actually, that did hurt. (laughs) But the word used here of pain is not used anywhere else in Scripture to describe physical pain. In fact, the pain occurs twice in verse 16, and it's the exact same Hebrew word used of Adam's pain in working in the soil, and that's how the ESV translates it. But I think the other translations give a more full story. The translation I actually like best here is the New King James Version, which I don't often go to the New King James, for those of you who like it. There you go, kudos to you. It translates the word as toil, right? It is through difficult effort that Adam will eat of the produce of the ground. Now, we, we've got a, a decent-sized plot of land in our backyard as a garden. It's, it's always overgrown. In fact, we, we were having like a little cookout at our house a few years ago, and Mr. Mike told me, he's like, Chris, that is the nicest weed garden I've ever seen. And this year, I've been, I've been trying to tame it. I've been, you know, trying to I, I've channel that like cultivation uh, over the creation, and it feels like every time I pull a weed, two more seem to take its place. Right? It's so tough, like trying to get ahead of it. That's toil. It feels like futility. And so pain in verse 16, I don't think is about the physical pain of childbirth. But instead, it speaks to the futility of the work of both Adam and Eve and their descendants. And so in my opinion, I could be wrong on this, so take it with a grain of salt, but in my opinion, verse 16 is not about women suffering more acute pain in childbirth but describes life after the fall, when creation is broken. That the very act of conceiving and raising children is marked with strife and toil. Couples will struggle with fertility. They'll face disappointment after disappointment as they attempt to mimic God and the creation of life. There will be heartache because the very nature of creation has become out of whack because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Children might finally come to your womb, but even out of the womb there will be suffering. Our children are being raised in a world that's distorted by sin. Mothers will grieve, have pain over their children who suffer at the hands of others. I mean, look at in Exodus, the Hebrew mothers who are had their children ripped from their arms by the Egyptian powerhouse during the time of Moses. Look at the mothers who wail at Bethlehem when the tyrant Herod had them slaughtered. Look at Mammy Till Mobley, 
whose 14-year-old boy was brutally tortured and killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman. More than likely, he was victimized merely because he was black. I know this is heavy stuff, but I think that's a theme that we find ourselves in the text that we're going to look at in a moment this morning. The cry of women who desperately want to be mothers but cannot. And those who are mothers but worry themselves sick for the health and wellness of their children in this cruel world. Sarai, in a moment of discouragement by her inability to get pregnant, tries to take matters into her own hands with disastrous results. So if you want to flip over a few pages, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 16. I'll start with just the first six verses. Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarai. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. So Abram is still childless. You know, those promises for a good decade from God are probably lingering in the back of the mind, and Sarai feels the pressure to provide an heir. So she takes matters into her own hands, providing her servant named Hagar for Abram to be his wife. And this is a custom that we'll see again when it comes to Abram's grandchildren, grandchild, Isaac. This was a likely normalized custom, as it is also mentioned from other texts in in the same region and time period. Now, I I just want to acknowledge, right, this is an example in the Bible where we see polygamy, and I don't think the Bible gives any kind of support for polygamy. We need to differentiate between what the Bible merely describes— versus what it prescribes for us to do. And when it comes to polygamy, it it, it doesn't end well, as we see in our passage. Hagar does precisely what Sarai was unable to do by being able to conceive. And now this has given Hagar fodder to to lash out at Sarai, causing more conflict. text says she's looking down at her. She's probably thinking, all right, maybe I can replace her now, because her entire identity is equated with her fertility, something she doesn't have any direct control over. I mean, this whole situation is a hot mess. Sarai is more than the hospitality of her uterus, but that's not how her culture at large was treating her. And amid this broken environment, we see a replay of the fall narrative. Everybody starts looking at their neighbor, trying to find someone else to blame. Sarai takes her grief and anger, first lashing out at Abram, Sarai initiates this idea, but Abram's the one who went along with it. He wasn't forced to. Sarai takes matters in her own hands and has made things worse, just like we saw two weeks ago. 
We saw two weeks ago Abram trying to protect himself by passing his wife on as his sister to the Pharaoh of Egypt so that he would spare his own life. This particular, in that particular encounter, I lamented how Sarai was treated like an object, that she had no agency in the midst of that encounter, of that deal that was brokered between Abram and Pharaoh of Egypt. And, but here we see Hagar suffer a similar fate. She's treated like an object. She's valued merely for her womb. Now, having given Abram a solid piece of her mind, Sarah turns her attention to Hagar, and Hagar flees. And so let's pick up with what happens next. This is Genesis 16, 7 to 16. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I swear, every time I read that, cotton eye just starts playing through my mind again. Sorry, that's, again, every time. Anyway, she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered from multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Ishmael bore, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was eight to six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So Hagar runs away from Sarai, and the text says that she's found at the spring of Shur. And this is the route towards Egypt. Hagar is returning to her homeland, back to her people. And this angel of the Lord appears behind before her. And I don't want to unpack the identity of that angel of the Lord. That's probably a message in and of itself. But note that when he speaks, his words are perceived to be God's own words. So the Lord is saying to Hagar, return to your mistress, return to Sarai, change your attitude towards her. But what he says next in the text reinforces that he is supporting her. God promises to Hagar that her child will be multiplied, similar promise that we saw him provide to Abram, And then God provides the name of the child. And names are very important in this culture. You shall call him Ishmael. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you can see there's a little footnote down there. It tells you exactly what Ishmael means. Literally means God hears. God has heard of Hagar's affliction. He has heard of Sarai's treatment, harsh treatment towards her. God has listened to her cries and responded. Now, for those of you who have children, <clears throat> I don't know if this has been your experience. You might have a kid who's like really passionate about something, but it's not something like you're, you find super interesting. Just as an example, Austin is big into Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, I, I like Dragon Ball Z, but he starts talking about it. Tell me about his like mobile game, Dragon Ball Legends, and all the characters he's unlocked, and all their like legendary finishers, and all this stuff, and sometimes it feels like morning, noon, and night, like that's what he's talking to me about. Like, I'm, I'm in the midst of, of a task. I'm, like, taking the trash out of the house. I'm about to head upstairs with this bag full of trash. And he's like, hey, Dad, let me tell you something real quick. So I'm like, okay. I pause, thinking, you know, this is going to be, like, a 15-second conversation. But then he just starts going, and it's like five minutes go by. And I'm just like, I'm still holding this trash bag. I have something to do, right? I'm looking for this escape hatch to get back to the task at hand. 
Now, you know, saying that out loud, like, I feel like a bad parent, but we all, I'm sure, been there, right? The kid starts moving their mouth, and our eyes begin to glaze over. Like, we're hearing him, but we're just, like, not fully present. God is not like that. He is, in fact, precisely the opposite of what I just described. God listens to our petitions. He patiently, he intently focuses on the cries of our heart. In God, we can receive validation for our feelings and experiences and know that our cries do not fall on deaf ears. Hagar acknowledges this. We don't see this in most of the translations, but when she says, you're God who sees, literally, she's giving God a nickname. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees. Right? The Lord has seen her consternation, and he has responded to her. She has visibility. Now, before we close, I want to look at one more passage that highlights the same theme. And so if you still have those Bibles open, flip ahead to Genesis chapter 21. And spoiler alert, we're going to get there next week, but uh, Sarah does have a son named Isaac. Like I said, we'll get there. But this passage, so sorry if you were like wanting to be surprised if you didn't know that already. But this passage that we're going to read follows right on the heels of the birth of Isaac. So, So this is Genesis 21, 8 through 21. And the child grew, this is Isaac, Abraham and Sarah's child, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, so Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for though Isaac shall your, so for through Isaac, excuse me, shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulders, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Continues, verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite to him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So this story fast-forwards about 16 years. Abraham and Sarah have had their own biological son, Isaac, and there's once again strife in this blended family. Now, verse 9 says that Ishmael was laughing. I mean, a better translation, he's probably mocking Isaac. And Sarah gets mad, and she wants to kick them out again. But God informs Abraham that he's, he's got plans for Ishmael. Even though Ishmael's older, he's not the heir. Again, a theme. 
Keep these themes in mind because when we eventually will get there with Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, we'll see the same theme continue over the next two generations. Abraham gives Hagar and Ishmael supplies for the journey, including this explicit mention of water, and they set out. Now, wandering in the wilderness, the, the wilderness is basically a desert for them. Water is in low supply. And verses 15 to 16 tell us that the water was exhausted. So Hagar plans for the worst. She leaves Ishmael, presumably asleep under a bush. It gets out of eyesight, gets out of earshot, so she doesn't have to watch him die. She cries out, weeping over their suffering. God heard the voice of Ishmael as he cried out too, and he responds. He reinforces his previous promise to Hagar to make Ishmael a great nation, and voila, he provides a well for their sustenance. Once again, God hears their cry and responds. God who sees, God who hears our sufferings. God does not turn a blind eye. He's not uncomfortably quickening his pace by us when he sees us begging, crying out to him. But he hears and he intercedes. Now note, this doesn't mean that God erases suffering. I mean, Hagar and Ishmael thought they were going to die. I'm sure as their thar- their, their, their parched throat struggled to swallow, their, their mouth was, was dried out from salivation, they thought to themselves, like, this is the end. One of the great misconceptions of our faith in our generation is that it is easy. If you would just follow Jesus, then life would always go your way. We've got hucksters posing as preachers, promising that God's just going to give you your best life now. But God never promises an easy road. In fact, Jesus says that the road to easy street is the one that leads you down to destruction, but that narrow road, that difficult road of following him is the one that leads to life. God never promises a life exempt from suffering, but he promises to be a God who sees and hears our struggles. I mean, using that metaphor of the great psalm, Psalm 23, like he doesn't keep us from having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't get to take a shortcut around it. But he promises that he will be with us, that he will comfort us in those times. So my question to you this morning is think what trauma that you are enduring that you wish God would see. Whatever circumstances you're going through, whether it be something we spoke of this morning, something like infertility. Maybe, you, you, you know, you don't worry about where your next meal is going to come from, but you're looking at your finances and you're like, how am I going to pay these bills? Maybe you're grieving over the loss of a family member or a friend, or there's an ending of a relationship that you're grieving. Maybe your body or your mind is not as sharp as it used to be and you're lamenting this like slow decline of health with age. Whatever comes to mind for you. I wish I could just say like, pray these simple words or follow this formula and it'll all go away. But that's not how we see God working in the scriptures. I mean, there are for sure times that he comes through in miraculous ways. But there's also times where it feels like our cries for mercy fall on deaf ears. What I want you to know this morning is that whatever cry that you have lifted up to God, that he has heard it. He has seen it. You 
are not alone in this plight. I was once speaking, I may have used this example before, but I was once speaking to a woman who had endured some pretty significant abuse at the hands of someone close to her. And for years, she struggled to understand why God would have let this happen to her. And understandably, it was a source of doubt. Like, God, why didn't you intervene? She felt abandoned. Many years later, she shared that God had revealed something to her, that when she's processing through this grief yet again, she asked, God, where were you in the midst of that? And she felt him respond, saying to her, I was there. I was right next to you. I was weeping with you. And it was a significant moment for her. I mean, it didn't make the pain go away. It didn't sugarcoat what took place. But there was some validation in her trauma that this was wrong and that God saw and acknowledged it as wrong and was providing comfort for her, holding her together in times where she didn't feel like she could hold it together herself. An acknowledgement that God was brokenhearted over it as well. This morning we saw a story that communicated there were so many layers of pain in the midst of this. Sarai struggling with infertility. Hagar being treated like an object. Hagar and her son nearly dying in the wilderness. All of this, consequences from the fall. All of it not the way the world is supposed to be. Ramifications of the brokenness of our society. When we cry out to God and it feels like silence, there's two things that I want us to remember. First, that God does hear. He is El Roy, as Hagar names him, the God who sees. He is near to us. Again, this, the testimony of Scripture say this, that he is near to the brokenhearted. In Exodus, whenever Moses sees him at the burning bush, what does he say? I have heard the plight of my people. But secondly, I want us to, to recognize, to know that God is not silent. He, he may not respond the way that we want him to in that particular moment, but to know that he's not silent, we need only look at the cross. Because through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we see is that God has created a way of reconciliation, establishing his kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a place of healing, of life, that through the cross he has dealt with sin and brokenness and death, that he has invited us into share in the newness of that life. Not just in the age to come, but what does Jesus say in John 10? That he has come that we might have life and have it to the full knowing that he goes with us in those spaces. I wish I could provide like better resolution than that, where you kind of tie things up with a nice bow, but on this side of paradise, that's not how life works. But we have hope. We have hope that the one who called us is faithful and will bring all things to fruition at his time, through his purposes, and for his glory. And so as we, this week, I, I want us to think about some of our pain points. And here are some questions and statements to reflect on from the text. So I want to invite you to, to read the story of Abram. Again, starts in verse 
chapter 12 goes through, I don't know, 22, 23 of Genesis. And read through this and see the brokenness of humanity, that it is not a prescription of a righteous life. Abram, Abraham is called righteous in the text, but frankly, that's like in spite of his behaviors. He's got gaffes left and right. So instead of seeing it as how, okay, I need to model my life after Abraham, how, are, how do we see the faithfulness of God amidst broken humanity, ruined sinners, as we sang this morning, and to uplift God? Second is this. Where you see God promise some things to Ishmael, how do God's promises towards Ishmael shape your perspective of the Palestinians, where it kind of come out of that lineage of Ishmael and the faith of Islam? Now, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to... to, to, to sh- you know, encourage any kind of universalism, but we looked at this last week when we saw these promises of land to Abraham's descendants, and so what does that make us think about the, the nation, of, nation state of Israel, the Hebrew people there? So similarly, God said he's got a plan for Ishmael. How do we fit that into our frameworks? Again, I'm not telling you how to feel about that. I just think it's something worth reflecting on. And then lastly is this. Are there any areas of pain or trauma that you've tried to keep away from God, or maybe you've blamed God for. Whatever it might be, God can handle it. What might it look like to process through the grief with him, to invite him into that, to to acknowledge him as the God who hears, the God who sees? I'll post those on Facebook and the website like I do each week. Let's pray together. Lord, as I read the scriptures, I just continue to be surprised is not the right word, but we see just the the wake of destruction in our bad decisions. We see Abraham doing it. We see Sarah doing it. We see pain. Lord, thank you that these stories are recorded so that we can see our lives in them, that as we encounter pain, as we feel like we're on the, the brink of death, or we, we have uh, uh, relationship trouble, blended families, whatever it might be, when chaos and conflict ensues, Lord, that this is not something that's foreign. It's not something that's foreign to human experience, but that you have come near to those who suffer. Lord, that you have shown yourself to be a God who sees and a God who hears. And so as we leave this place, Lord, would you go with us? You always do, but may we have eyes to see your presence in our lives. Guide us and comfort us in our times of distress. In Christ's name, amen.